Welcome to Zen Mind, a podcast featuring talks from Zenki De La Roche, the guiding teacher here at the Boulder Zen Center in Boulder, Colorado. I'm Bryant at BZC. This week we continue a series that Zenki Roshi has been giving titled Studying the Way. I just want to remind you all that registration is open for the eight-week fall practice course, as well as the three-day weekend seminar, both of which begin on October 1st. The seminar is part of the course, but can also be attended on its own. If you're enjoying these talks, then I definitely recommend joining the course. There will be a series of eight talks with discussions and daily practice suggestions from Zenki Roshi related to each topic. So it's a great way to get some guidance on bringing Zen practice into your life, whether you're new to that or you have some experience. And the topic of the entire eight weeks is liberation from suffering. So we'll be talking about some of the very basic teachings of Buddhism and exploring how to practice and live our lives in the direction of less suffering. So I will put links to both of those events in the details for this episode, or you can just head to our website, boulderzen.org. Just one more thing, we've had to cancel the weekend sitting retreat, which was scheduled for next week. That's due to local COVID restrictions. But good news is that means Zenki Roshi will be giving one more talk before the end of this podcast season. So you can look forward to that. Now for today's talk, here's Zenki Roshi. Good morning. (laughs) So um, today is the fourth installment of this little series of talks that I've given under the titled Studying the Way. Now, you know, I embarked on this with no goal in mind. Uh, just an interest. And it, it looks to me like some of you are new here or haven't heard the previous talks. So this is not a problem. And this is the last talk I'll give until... Um, and then starting in the beginning of October for eight weeks, we'll have another course. And uh, you can check that out on the website. Um and I'll, I'll emphasize or go in in depth uh, or explore in depth really the core teaching of Buddhism, the, which is liberation from suffering. So I, I just to recap just a tiny little bit, I talked about study and and I landed on on the idea or the concept that. To study is, in, in, in this Buddha way, to study is to be intimate with. To study is to be intimate with your experience as it happens from moment to moment. And I did say, and I want to come back to that today, that concepts are important. But concepts can also get in the way because to be intimate with your experience, you know, you also have to release concepts. <clears throat> but what I haven't spoken about is the way. And, you know, I'm not a historian of religion and I'll never be one, but just in my course understanding, 
and maybe my fantasy, I think of Zen as a kind of amalgam of Taoism and Buddhism as it came together in China. <clears throat> and the Chinese, again, my course understanding, had to translate Buddhist ideas into the language that they had. And so the Tao, meaning the way, became a way to speak about the Dharma, which is, you know, Buddhism treats as the truth of how suffering exists, is created, and can be released. So the way is this large concept, but what's beautiful about the way is that it it's uh, it implies if we just take the English word, it implies a, a a dynamic. There's nothing static about this studying of the Dharma. There's no nothing's static about it. It's, you know, you can try out other words. It's a dynamic, it's a process, it's one word I like, it's an unfolding. It's a, con- it's a continuous um, succession of action, of interaction, which we can be intimate with moment after moment. Uh, it's very common, you know, that we think of the world as um, uh, a constellation of things. It's like this thing and that thing, and then the self is also a thing, and everything has attributes. And So already, just to study, to be intimate with your experience as a way, as a process, as a succession of interactional moments, so you're not studying the self as an entity. You're not studying, you know, I'm not studying Christian or Christian as it would be said in German, you know. I'm like, here's this thing and I'm going to study it and then I understand something about it and then there's this part that I don't like about myself and then I'm going to want to change that. <clears throat> but we approach it that way all the time. Sometimes I ask myself, you know, what's what's the what is all this about? You know, that I the study of Buddhism. What is this? What is this all about? You know, you can get lost, and once you get into Zen, but yeah, you sit and you do this and you study, and so it's about ending suffering. But you know, is that really possible? And <clears throat> one thing I land on is openness. It's just a word I work with, you know, openness. A flexible mind. Not a particular mind. Not a, 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 not a particular state of mind. A f- flexible mind. An open mind. 
You know, it sounds good, but an open mind is kind of scary because openness has no walls and it has no ground and it has no ceiling. It's like there's nothing you can hold on to in openness. So if you want to be, say, a better person or you want to improve something about yourself or you're tired about a certain aspect of yourself and, and you want to become different, you know, openness is maybe attractive, but it's also kind of scary because it means on this way, in this path, you don't know where you're going. But you don't know how to go where you want to go. That's uh, openness. So I don't, you know, I don't know what to say next. (laughs) Yeah. I've brought up this um, really famous paragraph from Dogen's Genjo Koan, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by the 10,000 things. To be actualized by the 10,000 things means your own body and mind and the body-mind of the external world fall away. No trace of enlightenment remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. This unfolding, this way, continues endlessly. There's no arriving. Not even that, in openness, there's not even an arriving. So for openness, what I'm calling openness right now, that's forgetting, that's a, for, that's a way of speaking about forgetting the self. <clears throat> and this openness is an invitation for the 10,000 things to come forward and find out what the self is going to be. Not, not as Dogen also famously said, you're not carrying the self forward to actualize the 10,000 things. You're inviting the 10,000 things to come forward to actualize the self, not once and for all, but moment after moment. <clears throat> So it's not about creating a perfect self. It's about, maybe we could say, appropriate action, one step at a time. And then there's nowhere to rest because what how appropriateness is constituted in this next moment is not clear. So you have nothing to hold on to. <clears throat> Thank you.
There is a Zen story that I really love. <clears throat> That's a very short story. <laughs> the monk says, uh, when the hundreds or thousands or 10,000 things come all at once, what, what should be done? And the master says, do not try to control them. Dogen uh, comments on this is um, what comes, what comes is the Buddha Dharma. It's not objects at all. What comes is the Buddha Dharma. It's not objects at all. Even if you think you could control it, it cannot be controlled. <clears throat> Maybe I have a chance to come back to that. <clears throat> now, something... Uh, I'll, I'll approach everything a little bit differently now. Um, you know, there's this, there's this fascicle in the background of my talks. So there's this fascicle that I'm referencing, but very indirectly is... Uh, Dogen's fascicle called Body-Mind Study of the Way. You can look that up in the Shobogenza if you like. Study it. Uh, but he says to study the way is to study the way with the mind and to, to study the way with the body. Or with the body and with the mind. And he's kind of separating it. But really, you know, it's making clear you can't separate it. You study it with the body and with the mind. And studying it with the mind is you study it with all kinds of minds with the mind, with the intellect, with the mind of grasses and trees. You know, the mind of grasses and trees is the mind of the hundreds and thousands and 10,000 things coming all at once. <clears throat> you study it with emotions and feelings. and So my version of this, I guess, is, you know, I want to uh, speak about studying in five, five um, ways or five dimensions of study. Psychological. Behavioral. Energetic, attentionally, attentional, and conceptual. This sounds so abstract, but it's just a, um, it's just a kind of, um, grid right now that I want to use. <clears throat> so psychological, you know, so in Zen practice, you know, psycho, psychology and psychological and emotional is just, gets a bad rep, sort of like, yeah, if you do that, you know. Yeah. But I think that's not smart. <clears throat> so I'm speaking very generally right now, but my my sense is that 
there's a deep layer of our being where it's like we want to be loved. If you want to, if you want to make this uh, a little bit more dramatic, you know, we want to be loved unconditionally by our parents. Um, by other important people in our lives, and ultimately, I think, uh, by ourselves, too. But we end up with a lot of strive for conditional love. You know, if if I tweak my behavior this way, then my father will give me attention which is which is what I interpret as love. Or if I do it this way, then, you know, I get um, my mother's love. And then this fundamental structure can be translated into all kinds of relationships <clears throat> with your partner, with your um, friends, teachers, And then even with yourself, because we internalize these uh, certain expectations or something uh, that others have of us, and we turn them into expectations of ourselves. And so we uh, end up feeling there's something wrong with me, you know, more or less. Uh, It's dubious whether I'm worthy of love. It's also dubious whether I can even accept myself the way I am. And maybe I need to improve, you know, I need to fix this part about myself and work on that. So many people are working on themselves. Um, And then when I fix this, when I improve this, then I'll be worthy of love, I guess, or just generally worthy to exist. And, um, yeah, I think you know something about that in yourself. I know that in myself. Okay, so I I think this is... A, Fundamental, sort of like psychological dynamic. And we could study it. We could be intimate with it. I think it's important. Because you can try to instrumentalize your meditation practice for this process. Like if I meditate better, harder, more, longer... Uh, this will help me fix this, whatever it is, about myself, and then this will make me more worthy of love, self-acceptance or acceptance of others. But that makes your meditation practice very conditional. It is employed for this purpose. And so it will be very limiting. Or this... Structure is limiting your meditation. 
It's also limiting for the study of behavior. So one way I think about practice, I mean, practice as study or study as practice is that I study how I function behaviorally. You know, under these conditions, this happens. Under those conditions, this other thing happens. Um, so I get to know myself. I become intimate with myself through this kind of focus. How, how am I functioning in the world behaviorally? So if, if my goal is to, um, change certain behaviors so that I can be loved or that I can look good in my own eyes or something, this, this study is always already structured. I have I have this vision of studying behavior more in terms of how is it contributing or sub- subtracting from my sense of aliveness. This is very important to me when the when the precept the Buddhist precepts were introduced mm-hmm. to me, which basically are, you know, they are an investigation of behavior. A disciple of the Buddha does not kill. You know, where am I doing killing? Well, I may think I'm not. I'm not killing anything. Well, I'm engaged in killing all the time. Even as a vegetarian, you know, you're killing cabbages. There is no living without taking the life of other beings. It's not. It's not happening for any being. So in the midst of this um, precept of not to kill, there's killing going on all the time. So I'm just uh, saying, uh, right now I don't want to go into the precepts, but it's like the study of behavior, and then you have certain precepts for that to, to not take what is not given, to not misuse sexuality and so forth. So there's like certain prescriptions. But if you if you practice the precepts in order to be a good Buddhist and be worthy of respect of like your teachers or other Buddhists or something, this is this is just uh, feeding into the psychological structure that I uh, outlined. If you build up a self-image of like, I'm this uh, rule-observing person, it doesn't matter whether it's the Buddhist precepts or the Ten Commandments or whatever other rules exist or law-abiding citizen or something. If it's about a self-image so that you can look good with it, So one way I was able to crack this open is the teaching that I received is that when you break the precepts, you lose energy. When you keep the precepts, you um, uh, maintain energy or are nourished. Mm. That's way more interesting. What happens when you do take what is not given? What happens when you misuse uh, sexuality? Does it have any 
you know, how does it impact your life? Let's study. Because you kinda, we kind of have to find out for ourselves whether it, it actually makes a difference to keep the precepts. Does it, is, does it make any sense? Why? Because somebody says so? In Buddhism, you know, there's no God watching over us who condemns us to hell, and so we kind of have to find our own responsibility there. But when other people are unhappy with your behavior, does that give you energy or does it take energy away? <laughs> so this brings me to this uh, third dimension of study, uh, what I want to call energetic Something happened for me. I, I didn't know how to speak about it, but at some point in my meditation practice, it happened really early on in the in the first few days of of seriously taking on meditation. I got a feeling. I called it recently um, that I felt I felt permission to be unapologetically alive. That was that was a new from. I don't think it was a new... Th I, I think... No, how can I say this? I just wasn't aware of the possibility before, before I, I was. <laughs> before I was, I wasn't. I felt like I had to uh, prove something or, you know, in relationship to this, like, show myself as worthy or... And then there was a moment... In meditation, where I felt like I'm, I'm just here. I'm just here. I didn't have these words, but I'm trying to use these words that I'm using now to to convey the feeling. I'm just here. I don't. There's nothing I need to do. I can just occupy this space. It's okay. If you have a feeling like this, I mean, if you're familiar with it, I think to um, dip into it with every time you uh, sit to meditate, it's just enormously refreshing. Like, there's all these issues in your life, right? And then you can sit and just feel unapologetically alive. And then also deal with your stuff. Now, uh, for me, on, in, on my path, the, my study of the way, this really merged with the, it became a satisfaction for this need to feel unconditionally loved. You see what I'm saying? If you can just be there, no matter what, like without any conditions, that's a, that's a form to be unconditionally, let me just, without the supercharging it with the idea of love, but it's like, just be unconditionally present. 
this uh, phrase comes to mind again, something, another phrase I love, Suzuki Roshi saying, I am I, I am here. And when there's difficulty, I can manage pretty well. That is Buddha. Yeah, like that. I am here. I am I. Here I am. Like This is the starting point. It sounds so neutral, you know, unconditional presence, but there's a warmth there. And so you I... It's not like loving myself like I'm so in love with myself. No, it's a subtle feeling on the inside of um, fully embracing my own aliveness. When, when you come to that point... The drama of needing to, you know, manage your life in order to prove your worthiness to yourself and others just diminishes dramatically. And it allows an openness for, or, yeah, openness, uh, or a kind of neutrality or practicality in studying your behavior. <laughs> because the, the study of the behavior isn't just, lodged into the structure of needing to improve yourself for others or to um, build a self-image. It also frees up, and this is the next thing I want to bring up, it frees up the study of attention. I actually think... um, you know, I learned this from my teacher, but the, um, I want to say we talk a lot about attention. Yeah. And to some degree, I'm very skeptical about this talk about attention because unless this energetic presence has been clarified in, to some degree, it doesn't have to be much. It's just, it can actually just be a kind of inkling. Uh, which is um, a settling of this inner struggle. Before that, it's almost like you don't even have the presence to study attention. You know how attention, attention is really like you know this uh, this saying about the fish who swims in water and doesn't notice the water. It's really difficult to notice attention because attention is um, the medium through which everything happens for us. Do you know what I mean? It's like, if I look at you, you appear, right? And this is my attention, is the medium for that appearance. And so I, I suspect it's the same for you. Um, and then if I look to someone else, then my attention has shifted and then something else appears. So our... Our path, the way that we study, is really a study of attentional moments. Because where your attention goes, your life goes. But if you're lodged into this struggle of trying to figure out how 
to fix yourself so that you can be worthy, it's like you are very much, very, very much involved with the contents that are appearing through your attentional process and not with the attentional process itself. So the, the contents have an enormous draw of getting involved with because this is like, this is the content of your life and you need to do something about it. So it's, it's really important to feel like I don't have to do anything about the content. It's okay. And then you can, you can actually step back and study the process of how the contents appear. I'm not saying that this is any, that you can, that there's something to be achieved here. I'm just talking about dimensions of where your study can go and what the requirements are or the conditions or something. Now, I've, I've spoken about this a lot is that the, you can discover when you study attention that there is a dynamic between focus and field. Focus and field. This appears from, if you can say it this way, from a large array of possibilities. The field has all kinds of possibilities of what could be focused. And then attention lands on this. This is also the, your involvement with the contents because if, if, if you're, if you're, if your involvement is with the this, and this and this that appears through the process of attention as it moves from moment to moment, you don't notice the field of possibilities. The field is, you know, in Buddhist terms, the field is emptiness, and the focus is what produces form. So if you disengage from the focus, you can start to feel the field of mind, the field of awareness. Now, when I said, you know, your energetic presence, you've, you sit there and you are, I don't know, it's marvelous. There's this contentment with just being present. Um, again, it doesn't take... It doesn't fix your, it doesn't fix your problems in life. <laughs> it changes your relationship to them, right? You understand. You still have to engage the problems of your life, but your relationship can be different because fundamentally you feel a kind of okayness, background okayness, background presence. And this background, energetic background presence is not separated from what I'm now calling the field of mind. The, the field of possibilities of where your mind can go is, is, is part of this presence. <clears throat> anyway, at least that's what I think I've discovered.
Now, the, the fifth dimension I, I called um, conceptual. And um, if you study with the, if you study the way with the uh, idea of understanding Buddhism conceptually, it's not going to work. Because it's like, right now I've started reading a book about karma, and uh, yeah, you know, there's, I, I want to get something particular out of the book. <laughs> because I'm very interested in this idea of, of action from moment to moment. And that's really the concept of karma in Buddhism. Karma means action. So I, have, I, I come to the book with a particular kind of question. And then, you know, the second chapter is about... I think it's a really good book. That's why I want to read it. But the, tech, the second chapter is about how was karma understood by in pre-Vedic times and then in, in Vedic times and then... In early Buddhism, and then it's like, oh. If it was, I'm listening to the book, so it's harder to just skip, usually. <laughs> when I read a book, I, I just go to chapter 8, you know, if I'm interested in chapter 8. Okay, so if I want to, if I want to become an expert on karma, that can be a real distraction because uh, it can even be a distraction from studying my karma. Because now I'm involved with trying to put concepts together or interpret concepts with other concepts, and I'm not really being intimate with how causes and conditions produce certain kinds of behaviors in me and what my possibilities are in this open field of mind and how that feels to disengage from a certain kind of habit or skill set that I have and open myself up to other kinds of actions that are deeply unfamiliar to me, which is always feels like a kind of edge where I lose my sense of self. That would be intimate, being intimate with karma, but... But still I'm reading the book, right? Why? I have a close friend who um, who lived by a certain maxim for a while, and the maxim goes something like, it's a German friend, so anyway, but I'm translating the maxim into English and uh, um, for the German speakers, you know, Beziehungen haben Vorrang. Relationships are primary. And it made an impact on me. I'm using this so that I can get away from Zen and show something about a concept that isn't spiritual or well, maybe it's maybe it's actually spiritual, but <clears throat> it appeared for me in a different context. So So, for example, I'm uh, I'm working on something, 
say the Boulder Zen Center books, you know, finances. I'm an accountant. I am. I kind of, it's hard to admit, but I kind of love accounting because it's so orderly, you know. Anyway, the whole cliche, right? It's like, you know, you kind of put it together and then there has to be a zero at the end and it's like, oh. but the frustration, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, I'm just, I just, uh, I just notice in myself the bias I have toward order and against chaos. It's a big theme in my life, you know, opening up to chaos. Keep opening up. <laughs> anyway, I'm very biased toward order because it gives me so much satisfaction. <clears throat> So I'm working on this, right? And then my twin sister calls. And I'm like, should I take the call or should I inch forward to the zero that I'm desiring? <laughs> and then the concept comes in, relationships are primary. And then I take the call. That we can only talk for a little bit. But then she has something very important to speak about. So it turns into an hour and a half. <laughs> now you, here's the thing. A concept like relationships are primary is useful when it dislodges or counteracts or functions as an antidote to a view that I'm already holding but might not be fully conscious of that I and my plans and activities and so forth are more important. So I allow this concept and the information that it gives me to change my behavior. There is no absolute truth in relationships are primary. I mean, you can call anything primary. You can call atoms primary and then, oh, well, that's not true. Quarks are primary. Or God is primary, that's a different view. I'm not joking about this. Maybe God is, it depends on how you understand God. I have an understanding of God where I can say God is primary. I don't talk about God, but I, if I did, I can make sense of that. God is primary. If God, anyway, I don't want to go into that. Um, <laughs> can of no that's not nice to God if it's a can of worms anyway the mind is primary matter is primary mind is primary 
Anyway, you see, it all gets kind of philosophical. This is not the point. The point is, if I don't value relationships adequately, to say relationships are primary is doing something to me, to my way of interacting with the world. That's a study. You see? That's a study. If I um, find out that I'm overvaluing relationships, I may have different kinds of uh, concepts in place to counteract that. Maybe you, you know, this is pretty popular these days, you know, you can only love others if you love yourself. Yeah, and then you can practice that. You can practice loving yourself as an important dimension of loving others. This also is a study. It goes to a certain point, you know. And then you can also release the concept and find that the opposite is true. Because if you go over all the way to this other side, that relationships are primary, then you might lose attention to your own needs. That wouldn't be so good. <clears throat> so it's, like, it's funny, we get so confused. You know, you have a concept and then you want it to be true in all ways. No, 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 no. It's just a way to channel, it's a way to channel your attention. In this case, to channel your attention to something that is easily overlooked when your attention is lodged in a view that is making you behave this way or that way. So take this, we've been talking about this, um, another version, the way this is said by Dogen in the Genjo Koan to, to, uh, to carry the self forward and actualize the 10,000 things is delusion. To let the 10,000 things come forward and actualize the self is enlightenment. So you want enlightenment, right? You don't want delusion. So then it's like study what it means to let the 10,000 things come forward and actualize the self. <laughs> What is it like to do that? What does that mean? Dogen also says, you know, what is it like when an enlightened person is nevertheless deluded? I don't want to confuse you, but letting the 10,000 things come forward and actualize the self is not like some absolute thing. It's like, the enlightened person is nevertheless deluded because it's, it's still important to carry the self forward and actualize the 10,000 things on some level. You know, it just is, it shouldn't be one sided. This needs to be studied. <clears throat> How you hold this dynamic freely, openly, and let it inform the way you function. When the hundreds and thousands and ten thousands of things come all at once, what should be done? Love that question. You know, what should be done? This is openness. What should, I don't know. I don't know what should be done. The master said, do not try to control them. 
Dogen says, even if you try to control them, they cannot be controlled. How, how do you study that? How do you study, do not try to control them? <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, keep opening up to chaos. <laughs> That's why it's important to me, you know? Because I have this bias toward order, which is a kind of control. That's why it's important that a master said, do not try to control them. Maybe it's not important to you, but it's important to me, so I study it. It's underneath things when I do things. Well, you know, it's the last talk and I should be able to bind it all together in a nice package, but I can't. (laughs) But notice... I said, if there's, like, if we want to talk about a goal in Zen practice or something, you know, I said openness or a flexible mind. Concepts have a bad reputation because they tie the mind down into a certain kind of view, into a certain kind of position. But the way I've just tried to explain or suggest how concepts can be used for a study, it's it's that you want to use them to open up something that you are attached to. You want to use it to unfix yourself from another concept and feel this dynamic relationship between what is it like to see it the other way. All right. Thank you very much for your attention. And um, let's take a break. And um, if you like, you can come back for some discussion.